0: On this week's edition of New York Now, we
1: unpack the history and impact of a new law that expands the definition of rape in New York State. Then we speak with Assemblymember Jessica Gonzalez-Rojas about her bill that would grant continual coverage to children under the age of six enrolled in Medicaid. I'm Shantel Destra, and this is New York Now.
0: Today, the
2: Senate majority will cancel the- legislation. Fight like hell for
3: you every single day. Like I've always done and
2: always will.
1: Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Chantelle Destra. It was a long road to get the Rape is Rape Act over the legislative finish line. But things changed this week when Governor Kathy Hochul signed the legislation that updates the state's definition of rape to include forced sexual contact that is not penetration. We're reassuring survivors that when they walk
0: into a police station or approach the witness stand, the full weight of the law of the state of New York is behind them. It's behind them now going forward. Prior
1: to the law, New York defined rape solely as forced vaginal intercourse. Now the state will recognize other forms of forced intercourse, including oral and anal forced contact, as rape. After working to get the bill passed for years, the bill sponsors, State Senator Brad Hoylman Segal and Assemblymember Catalina Cruz, celebrated the signing alongside the governor.
0: For sexual contact against your will, whether it involves vagina, anus, or mouth, is an absolute violation of self and your trust, and it's calling, any, calling it anything other than rape negates what we as survivors have endured. This insufficient and discriminatory narr- narrative also leaves out victims of male-on-male, female-on-female attacks, often resulting in failure to prosecute the rapes committed upon members of our LGBT community. But today, rape is rape becomes law, and it is more than just a simple change in words. It's a systematic shift on how we think about who is a rape victim and who is a rapist.
1: While the law was first introduced in 2011 and for years passed in the Assembly, it struggled in the state Senate, which Senator Hoyleman Segal underscored in his remarks. Uh, at times, it seemed like the Senate wouldn't take yes for an answer, but we got there today. And the senator went on to explain how the expanded definition of rape in the state will empower male victims and members of the LGBTQ community to come forward and report for sexual contact. Here to discuss the newly passed Rape is Rape Law, we're joined in studio by Maysoon Khan of the Associated Press and Ashley Huffle of the Daily Gazette. Thank you both for being here. Thank, Thank you for you. having us. Now we know this law originated with the story of Lydia Cuomo, who in 2011 she was brutally attacked by an off-duty police officer. The jury did not find her attacker um, guilty of rape, but he did find her, they did find him guilty of sexual assault. And since then, Lydia has been very adamant that Albany needed to update the state's law and expand the definition of rape. So it's been 12 years since that. All took place. So, why did it take so long for this to come to fruition?
3: Well, I think part of the reason is that we did have a Republican-controlled Senate up until I believe uh, a few years ago, and there was really not much appetite for the bill to pass. Uh, the Assembly did pass it each year, but it didn't really go any right. further. And I think with uh, having the first female governor, really, um, and you know, she's she's talked a lot about that being, you know challenges around that, that she's brought women's issues into uh, the forefront that I think that really got it over the hill. Yeah. And as you
1: said, it passed time and time again in the Assembly, but there was some hurdles in the state Senate. So what were some of those hurdles that prevented it from getting it over the finish line?
2: I think there's been a serious cultural shift in the way we view rape. And so I think that was definitely a component and just more politicians having political will to get this over the finish line compared to before I think one of the lawmakers said there was kind of an archaic view on how we view this subject or talk about this subject. Um, so I think that definitely has been a huge component in getting it over the finish line. But I would like to reiterate, having a first female governor, I think that definitely helps, especially with past Republican leadership. Um, so I think things are a little different now compared to the past.
1: Definitely. And in the governor's remarks, she brought up Eugene Carroll's case, which the former the writer, um, accused the former president, Donald Trump, of rape. The former president was not convicted of rape. And the judge in that specific um, case cited the state's narrow and technical definition of rape as one of the reasons why the jury did not move forward with the rape charge. So, you know, it seems like there. this is something that definitely prosecutors were aware of, right, that the state had a very narrow view of rape, and it was just a matter of time. So, from a legality standpoint, um, how will this help help survivors and prosecutors move forward with rape charges?
3: Well, as you said, it broadens the de- definition. Um, <clears throat> previously, the definition of rape was vaginal penetration, and now it's been oh, it's now broader to anal and oral right. penetration, mm-hmm. and it it opens the door for us to discuss rape when it comes to LGBTQ community. Yeah and and really um a lot of i mean as you said uh th- so in the case of Lydia Cuomo, they couldn't prove that there was vaginal penetration, mm-hmm. so she, he was convicted of sexual assault, and uh, I think we're really talking about more uh the idea that it it, it doesn't have to be just a vaginal, like like you said, it's yeah. a very narrow definition, yeah, and it really opens the door for a lot more uh claims and things like that. Mm-hmm.
2: And sorry. Oh no, also it just kind of ensures inclusivity, as you said, and it includes all forms of non-consensual sex. It doesn't have to be vaginal penetration by a penis. And so that's kind of another aspect. It might be easier. I think Hochul said this early in the week, it'll be easier for you know, victims to hold perpetrators accountable in the court of law because of this expanded legal definition, so. Mm-hmm.
1: And what was interesting to me was that New York definitely isn't a leader in this, right? In fact, there are several states who have already expanded the definition of rape um, to include these other forms of forced sexual contact. So what does this say about the state that New York took so long to kind of bring this over the finish line?
3: I know, I, I mean, I talked to a few people uh, about this and I was very surprised that they did not know this. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were surprised that it's, it's just, yeah. uh, it was, you know, the legal definition. Um, And I I think, again, some of the aspects that we talked about previously, you know, of the first female governor and and really bringing these issues up into the forefront. um, It just hadn't been talked about, I think, much or people didn't know. Right. Yeah.
1: And as you said, people didn't know. And now this is a huge change, this expansion of the definition. So what can lawmakers and prosecutors do to ensure that people are aware of this big
3: change?
2: I definitely think there needs to be a public awareness campaign. I know a lot of lawmakers, I know the governor's office really carried this bill. Um, They had their whole press conference earlier in the week. So I think they might have public awareness campaigns. Uh, That's just a guess, um, just to educate the public. I know, as you said, prosecutors, DAs, everyone's kind of aware that there needed to be a change. Even the judge in the Trump case acknowledged it. Um, And so I think that, you know, I think maybe as time goes, we'll see how that unfolds.
3: I think the Trump camp, uh, trial also um, has done a lot of public awareness right. within itself. Absolutely. I mean, the whole nation was watching. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think uh, maybe not just, I think the way we talk about rape and it being um, more of a public issue just within itself. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. the, the issue of rape alone, um, mm-hmm. I think will will help the conversation. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. And going back to the ways in which that this bill or this law will help the LGBTQ plus community. In his remarks, um, Senator Brad Hoyman Segal, of course, underscored this point. Um, and he just cited the studies of how many transgender people are you know, experiencing rape and are fearful to come forward because of the challenges. So what are some other ways that we can continue to help this community report rape and sexual misconduct?
2: Um, well, I think Senator Brad Hoyleman, he kind of spoke about how the previous definition, the old definition, was super heteronormative. Mm-hmm. And so I definitely think, as you mentioned, a public awareness campaign is necessary just to acknowledge that there are various forms of non-consensual sex that, you know, may result in, you know, things like that. Um, so I definitely think just public awareness and then even just the simple change. I think a lot of people who are victims finally will have a means to come forward. Um, you know, with their case, if they choose
3: to? I think a major component is education. I mean, the, to talk to people, you know, no means no. And really, um, the more you can, yeah, I guess education and um, to everyone, I mean, all across the board. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and I want to get both of your perspectives on the Red Room signing of the bill. I would say, you know, A lot of the signings of bills are very performative. They are just very celebratory. But this one definitely felt very heavy. A lot of the, um, you know, remarks from the Senate sponsor and the assembly member who sponsors the bill, it was very emotional, very filled with a lot of passion. Did you guys feel that as well?
3: Absolutely. I mean, I saw people, women crying. Mm -hmm. Um, It seemed like this was just something that some people, Lydia Cuomo, have been working for for so long that I, th- I, I can't imagine what that would be like. Right,
2: mm-hmm. and you also felt kind of a heaviness in the room. Um, just, I think it was an emotional moment for a lot of people um, in just passing this as well, so.
1: Yeah, and then before the bill um, was signed by the governor, the legislature did, pass a revised version with chapter amendments. And usually we don't see that. We usually see the governor will pass a bill with chapter amendments, with these specific changes, the bill can then move forward and become law. So what was the political strategy of the legislature doing that?
3: Uh, Hokel was asked about that. And I think there's probably some truth to the fact that to make that kind of shift in, in penal code is that there must have been a lot of work behind the scenes right. to do that across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure there were like every bill, there was details, you know, that went back and forth between the Assembly, Senate and the governor's office. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, we're not I don't think we we don't know the conversations that went on. But right. I, I do think there's a lot of truth to the fact that they probably had to do a lot of overall um, a uh, change in the language around this issue. Mm-hmm.
1: And really quickly, because we are running out of time, where do we go from here? Now that the bill is finally into law, what are some ways that the lawmakers can continue to help survivors in the years to come?
2: I think whenever a law is passed, you kind of see it roll out effectively, and then that's when you know amendments come in. And so right. um, I definitely think that time will tell. I think the law takes effect September 1st, um, so we still have ways to go. But I'm sure, you know, if any advocates raise up issues with certain parts,
3: they might make changes. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's always a, a rocky rollout to anything. And, you know, I know there's a lot of conversation around, you know, I mean, we've seen changes to the sex offender list. Um, I think really, it will like she said, time will slow. Right.
1: Well, unfortunately, we'll have to leave it here for now. Thank you both for joining us today.
3: Thank, Thank you for you. having
1: us. And we were speaking with Maysoon Khan of the Associated Press and Ashley Hupful of the Daily Gazette. And in the midst of getting bills passed and signed, budget negotiations are underway. The legislature has been holding public hearings to examine the governor's fiscal year 25 executive budget proposal on topics ranging from transportation to economic development and education. This is an opportunity for members of the legislature to give their perspective and question the governor's approach to the budget and receive public input. At the public health hearing, a big part of the conversation dealt with Medicaid spending. New York spends billions of dollars per year on Medicaid, and that figure was only exasperated by the COVID-19 pandemic. While unveiling her executive budget, Governor Kathy Hochul said the state needed to find ways to save in Medicaid spending. And the state's health commissioner, James McDonald, invited members of the legislature to help in those efforts during his testimony.
0: I know finding $200 million in savings in long-term care and Medicaid is gonna be hard. And you know, I look forward to working collaborative with you and your team to identify the best way to achieve these savings.
1: But lawmakers, including Senate Health Committee Chair Gustavo Rivera, argued the state should not look at cutting Medicaid, but instead look at other options, like tapping into federal aid for migrants, which he argues could free up dollars to prevent cuts.
3: Again, Sorry. Not a good answer, particularly since the federal government last year told us explicitly when we asked them, they sent us a letter. I don't know if you got it. I got it. That said explicitly that we could do this. And yet y'all are not doing it. And yet you're coming here to us to tell us that we got to make these cuts, which not really cuts. We will get to that. But they're not really cuts. And you got five hundred million dollars at least.
1: And apart from Medicaid, some lawmakers also focus on extending certain public health measures that were put in place during the pandemic but have now expired. One such measure allowed for children enrolled in Medicaid and the state's CHIP program to not have to re-enroll for coverage. Assemblymember Jessica Gonzalez Rojas, a Queens Democrat, sponsors a bill that would establish continual coverage for children under the age of six. We spoke with the assembly member about the impact of the bill and the chances of it being included in the final state budget. Thank you so much for being here, Assemblymember.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Now, from your purview, what is the importance of this particular bill and how will it impact the lives of everyday New Yorkers?
0: So coming out of the COVID pandemic, we saw so much tragic outcomes. Um, The positive outcomes that did come from the pandemic is some of the emergency measures. There was a public health emergency issued by the federal government, and it allowed for children who are enrolled in uh, CHIP, or which is the state Children's Health Insurance Program, or Medicaid to be continually re-enrolled without having to recertify every single year. This allowed continuity of care, and it eliminated a lot of burdens on families that were struggling. Now that public health emergency ended in May, and we had to do a lot of outreach uh, with the Department of Health. Um, in fact, I got to co-author a, um, an op-ed with the Commissioner of Health, and we pushed to make sure that the community understood that now you have to start recertifying and re-enrolling. And what happened is that 400,000 people were dropped from the Medicaid rolls, and many of those have been children. And often it's not because of eligibility. It wasn't like their families were making so much more money, they were, they were disqualified. It was simply because of paperwork. So what my bill would do with uh, Senator Brooke in the Senate is allow for continual eligibility from zero to six years old to eliminate that burden, ensure children are healthy, and actually save them money at the state money.
1: hmm And the bill focuses on children age zero to six, but is there any opportunity or any room to extend it beyond the age of six? I know that you mentioned, you know, the 400,000 New Yorkers who mm. were not eligible because of paperwork issues. Mm. So is there any room to address that specific root cause as it relates to paperwork?
0: Well, what we have to do in order to get this passed is uh, implement something called the 1115 waiver, which is a federal waiver that allows for improvement of um, healthcare access and reducing costs. Now, uh, many states have already implemented this waiver. So we're really trying to ensure that we're modeling what's already been approved by the federal government. Um, Oregon and Washington have gotten approval for this and many states are, are moving forward as well. So it's been sort of a model. I certainly believe that healthcare is a human right I'm fighting for the New York Health Act, which will provide universal health care. Um, but until then this is a model that we're implementing to ensure that children prior to many of them going to school that they're able to get that continual care uh, of health care.
1: Right. And will this cost the state anything, or is it particularly like focused on the waiver that the federal government would pick up the cost?
0: The federal government will pick up much of the cost. The win was, is that the, the governor did put it in her executive budget, which is really exciting. Um, so we did get some cost estimates. It's about $7.5 million, but that has a drop in the bucket, bucket in the 200 plus billion dollar uh, budget for the state. And this will certainly save us money because it reduces the administrative costs um, for workers here in New York and ensures, again, continuity of care and that our children are healthy.
1: Yes, and I did see, of course, the governor did put it in her executive budget, like you said, so that's a win.
0: It's a big um, win. We were yeah. advocating, uh, again, as as uh, the senator and I are both mothers, right. um, and we called on our first mom gov- governor to include this in her budget, which was really exciting. It was rolled out recently, and we uh, see that it's in there. Um, we want to ensure there's one little piece missing that allows families to move from, Medicaid, from S-CHIP, the state children's health insurance program, to Medicaid if it provides better uh, care for their needs. Um, That provision isn't in there, but again, that's pretty minor provision we'll continue to advocate for in our Assembly One House and our Senate One House. Mm -hmm.
1: And what are your conversations like with Assembly Speaker Carl Hasty to include it in the One House budget and potentially bring it onto the floor?
0: Yeah, we've been having, you know, starting to meet as a conference. The session just began about two weeks ago. So um, this came up actually yesterday um, because we were reviewing the governor's budget. Um, And again, there's uh, positive uh, feedback on it. So I I believe that we'll be able to include it in our one house and again get it over the finish line to make sure it's in the final enacted budget.
1: Mm -hmm. And this of course is a very busy legislative session. Even though it just started, there's so many legislative priorities. So what is the strategy to ensure that it doesn't get lost in the politics of this session? It is an election year. so what are you and the senator going to be doing to continue to garner support as the session progresses?
0: Yeah, we're certainly not resting on our laurels. Again, (laughs) it's a really big win to have it in the executive budget, but we are continuing to advocate for this. We've brought up a whole coalition of of community members up to Albany last week to uh, launch a a press conference. Um, We're we're having these conversations. We're meeting with our uh, fellow legislators. So we're really continuing to push to make sure it doesn't fall off. Um, And as again, as we come out of this pandemic and we start seeing the elimination of many of the programs including food access programs and health access programs Um, we want to make sure that we're capturing those families and those communities and making sure that they are uh, healthy in New York because again unhealthy families cost the state more money it's it's in our best interest to do so and again as someone who believes health is a human right it is our duty to do that
1: And what have you heard from your constituents in your district um, about this bill? Like, how are they saying it would help them?
0: Yes, certainly the burden of completing paperwork over and over and over again um, has been really tough. And again, many of the children that have been disenrolled um, are not disenrolled because they're ineligible, it's simply because of the paperwork burden. So this would relieve such a burden on so many families. I represent a large working class, immigrant rich community. And this again will be very helpful for those that uh, have already been enrolled in the program. And we wanna make sure to get out the word and make sure Folks who are not yet enrolled get enrolled and then they're able to stay enrolled um, through the age of six. And then, you know, if they continue to be eligible, they'll be able to continue to re-enroll.
1: And this of course started because of the pandemic or in the midst of the pandemic, which is interesting to me that, you know, it was an emergency measure Mm -hmm. that we're hoping gets extended. Mm -hmm. So are there any other um, emergency measures that you think would be beneficial to extend just like this bill would potentially be doing as we move into a post-pandemic world?
0: Yeah, absolutely. There was a lot of measures around food security, right? That um, was available to families during the pandemic. Um, We're looking at SNAP and making sure to raise the minimum benefit as I talked about here before. Um, We wanna make sure that some of the positive policy outcomes from the pandemic don't get lost simply because the public health emergency is over. We know COVID is still very real and in fact, the rates are going up. Um, I think there was a lot of positive outcomes in terms of the policy measures that came during that emergency and we have to make investments as a state. To ensure that our communities are healthy and have the opportunity to thrive, Hochul's talked about a, uh, a livable, safer, affordable New York, and health is so critical to that uh, being able to live um, and and thrive in the state. So these are measures that we want to continue and advocate for and make investment on.
1: And a huge portion of this bill, as you mentioned, is focused on a waiver that the federal government would pick up. So you know. Just in case there is any pushback from mm-hmm. the federal government, what are some um, contingencies that we'll put in place to ensure that we still are helping children from ages 0 to 6, but you know we may not get the help from the federal government? What will you be doing to ensure that they get that assistance?
0: I actually feel confident that the federal government would approve this waiver. Uh, Washington State and Oregon already got approval. Again, that model of the 0 to 6 is something that um, we're seeing some states implement and start to move forward. And the waiver is designed to ensure that we have continuity care, we're addressing health inequities, and we're saving the state money. So we do feel confident it's about getting that language in, getting that waiver submitted, and making sure that we're actualizing the program. So we feel pretty confident. Again, it's a very small cost to the state, and much of it would be picked up by the federal government, which is a win-win for the state and Mm -hmm. the the country.
1: And what is at risk if, you know, for example, this doesn't make it over the legislative finish line. I know that you're going to try your best to, you know, get it past this session. And if it doesn't make it this session, of course, bring it back year after year. But what is at risk? Like, what would be the impact?
0: Well, the impact would be the health of our children. And as a mom, I know that tender age between zero and six, you are constantly getting checkups, you are constantly getting vaccines, right? As children enter the, you know, Preschool and pre K, right? You're exposed to more germs, right? It's really critical that children have access to the full range of health care, especially at the tender age, throughout their whole life, obviously. But those are the ages you have to make sure they're meeting the vaccination requests, the needs and requirements, and everything that ensures that they're healthy. And and that means the health of their communities, too, in our communities. So um, it, it would be tragic actually to see this fall off. I don't believe it will. I believe we're really committed to it and I think we'll get it done. Um, But it's really important to understand the consequences of not acting.
1: Well, there's a lot here. And as you underscored, there's a very important bill. We'll have to continue to check in with you as the session progresses. Thank you so much for being here.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for having me.
1: And we were speaking with Assemblymember Jessica Gonzalez-Rojas. For more information and updates on the continual coverage bill and developments on the state's budget, you can visit our website. That's at nynow.org. Now that does it for this episode of New York Now. Thank you for tuning in and see you next week.
0: Funding for New York Now is provided by WNET.